welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, we found anywhere podcasts can be found. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here with Lauren Latour, your co-host. Amazing. One of two. Dave's not yes. with us today. Dave has taken the week off, but we'll be back next week, I'm sure. And we are graced with a, not a full show interview, but a good long interview and mm -hmm. chat that you did, Lauren. So maybe you can tell our listeners about what you're talking about in the second half of the show. Yeah, absolutely. It's another show where listeners will know that if I'm doing the interview, it's because the people are almost definitely my friends. <laughs> kind of, that, that's all I ever do. I talk to my friends. And I talked to Robin and Sajel. Sajel is a practicing physician who works at the Children's Hospital in Ottawa, but she also works at the, if, if you're familiar with Ottawa, there's the Centertown Health Clinic and she works there as well. So she is like a frontline physician, but she's also a co-chair of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment's Ontario chapter. So, so that's what she does. And then Robin is the co-executive director of Council of Canadians. And we brought them both on because I heard Sajel speak at an event a couple weeks ago, a rally that was hosted by David Suzuki Foundation. And she was incredible speaking about that sort of intersection between public health and healthcare and climate. And Robin and the Council of Canadians currently have a really great campaign up around pharmacare. So we thought it'd be fun to get the two of them on to talk about that sort of public health climate change intersection, but also their experiences of this summer of wildfires. Because obviously, Sajel, as a, as a frontline healthcare provider, especially based in like a deeply urban environment, has been seeing those, those effects in her patients and in her clients. And then Robin, as somebody who lives, she lives in Dartmouth, but in the sort of Dartmouth-Halifax area, experienced wildfires and the, the community effects of those herself earlier this summer when, when wildfires were sort of plaguing that region. Yeah. And... We wanted to do that interview partially because we had a couple longer interviews during the time the fires were really bad, at least here in Ontario. My understanding is the fires remain quite bad in other parts of the country. I know that there's a complete fire ban in BC across the entire province right now. And so by no means is this a problem that no longer is affecting the country. But we wanted to sort of actually have a conversation about the wildfires and we don't want to miss that moment because it is such an important topic, especially given the health impacts. Yeah. And it was so great. Like, obviously, again, the, those are conversations we hope to continue to have as the summer goes on throughout what I'm sure is going to be going to continue to be a long and exhausting wildfire season. But but specifically getting these two women talking about about the health side of things, because that is an area of expertise that neither myself your, nor yourself possess in any way, shape or form. So I hope I'm not sort of like overselling the conversation. I hope I didn't give away too many details because obviously I want people to, to stick around and hear about those concepts from Robin and Sajel themselves. But it was a, I, I don't want to say it was a fun conversation. It was an incredibly informative conversation. I feel like I learned a lot and also hearing their, their sort of firsthand experiences of, of everything that's happening in their sort of given sectors and regions was quite harrowing. For sure. So in lieu of sort of our normal news breakdown, I figured that what we could talk about at the beginning a little bit is, is a sort of shift in some types of climate messaging. I would say like when we started this show or when I started the show, which was now 10 years ago or something. One million years ago. Exactly. It, or it's like it's like the, oh, wait, no, the SpongeBob memes eight years later. 
right. the Titanic like, one is like 87 years ago. Yeah, that's on the Titanic meme. As we've and the Earth has hit the iceberg now, is if this metaphor continues. Because for a long time there was this kind of understanding or thinking that focusing on adaptation, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was a bit of giving up the game. You know, like the a conversation about adapt adaptation, which was even then still important, but was definitely at that time a bit of like, well, things are going to get bad, and so we should accept that. And at the time, there was a, a pushback against that because it was like, well, what if we just actually stopped producing fossil fuels and didn't have this kind of runaway climate change? That would be much better instead of just having to adapt to a never-worsening world. And I think now it's very safe to say we are well within the range of already not great scenarios and we're locked into worse ones. And so I think at this point, it would be malpractice not to begin to talk more about how we just keep surviving the ongoing climate catastrophe we're living through while also still prioritizing the need to get off fossil fuels. Don't get me wrong. But there is a bit more of that need for adaptation conversations because you know, you can't go outside for three days last week because of, you know, wildfire smoke. That's the climate urgency, you know? Yeah, yeah. I myself, I don't engage with the with the adaptation side of things enough. I know there's the adaptation strategy that is in the works from the federal government. There was a consultation period a couple months ago that was encouraging folks to to provide feedback on it. And and if I'm being honest, like I I have not plugged into that space. I know virtually nothing about it. Because although I've never been like, no, we can't talk about adaptation, I myself have always been more so involved in the in the in the mitigation side of things. And and I know we've talked about this before and, and listeners are probably definitely aware. But just in case if we're if you just turned on the radio in the car and you're like, what the frick is mitigation adaptation? What are Stefan and Lauren referring to? It's the idea that kind of climate action falls into two broad categories and funding falls into those two broad categories. There's a third one, loss and damage. We won't talk about it today. But mitigation which are like the efforts that you go through in order to prevent climate catastrophe, solar panels, wind turbines, alternative forms of energy, not extracting and burning fossil fuels. And then there's the adaptive measures. And those are things like seawalls are usually the example I, I, I call on or like relocating to a different region that isn't in a floodplain or whatever. It's like those are th the ways in which we have to adapt not only personally and individually, but societally in order to prevent as, as as much damage or as much loss as is possible, not only to ecosystems, but but to human beings as well. So that's sort of what we're talking about. And and yeah, like like Steph said, there's a period of time for, for a decent chunk of time where a lot of the movement was really opposed to talking about adaptation because the 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 fear was if we start talking about adaptation too soon, then we're not going to spend enough time and energy on the mitigative aspects of of sort of the climate fight. And now for a couple of years now, for several years now, depending on where you're from, whether it's like the super far north or in the global south, the, the time to talk about adaptation and the time to spend money on it and strategize around it is like here and has been here. And this summer of wildfires is an example of that because we're kind of for the foreseeable future. It's not saying that we will never go back to a, a period of time where there aren't wildly bananas wildfire seasons. But for now, this is this is our reality. And how do we make sure that we're not experiencing mass casualties as a result of that? Exactly. And it reminds me a little bit of 
conversation we had in the fall of last year with the Climate Disaster Project, where their impetus was basically wanting to people to realize that we are all climate survivors in some way. We're all climate change survivors in some way. Because when you start asking, well, there are stories of surviving heat waves or of surviving, you know, extreme weather and, and these types of things, people start understanding that it's here now, right? And it's hard to get people to begin to start feeling like it's here now because climate change feels so amorphous. Even if you've just survived heat wave, even if you're literally, you know, outside and struggling. I literally had someone, a friend of mine, post on Facebook recently about how she made the mistake of exercising too much on one of those days that was really bad and basically got herself like knocked out, not actually knocked out, but like really hurt her lungs for like three or four days afterwards. And it was just like she was outside and danced too much when the wildfire smoke was around. And that kind of thing really just drives home the fact that like we are all living through this right now. And so the conversations you know, like this and the conversations that I, I think we can endeavor on the show to have more is in some ways definitely going to have to center, all right, it's not just about trying to prevent you know, the most emissions possible, which is still, I think, got to be goal number one. Adapt adaptation is necessary now. That's the whole conversation we're having right now. But I still think that like, when you think of the long-term implications, every degree, point of a degree, is the most important thing you can possibly do. Yes. The metaphor ah. that you often hear used is like, if a bathtub is overflowing, you first need to turn off the tap. And then, yes, you also need to bail the water out so it's no longer overflowing onto the floor. But like, we still have to turn off the tap. We still need to, like you said, mitigate and get those emissions down as much as physically possible. But yeah, yeah now we need to start dealing with the bathtub full of frickin' water. Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, and and so that's something I think that as we move forward, if folks on the show or listening to the show have people that they look up to or or projects that they're really interested in that sort of focus a little bit more on how people can survive during this time and and tips and tricks or any type of thing about, you know, what I guess tips and tricks feels like a little too service level. Yeah. Not necessarily talking about like wet a wet a handkerchief and tie it around your neck before you go out for a walk. Not yeah. No. Not, Not necessarily that. Yeah. But, but you know, I would be fascinated to hear about more projects. So there's an organization here in Toronto called Crew, which is Community Response to Extreme Weather. And they are doing some fascinating work in some local towers about trying to ensure that the whole community is ready for the next big heat wave. And, you know, it looks, it looks like making sure you have systems to check in on your elderly neighbors. It looks like making sure that you have plans for cooling centers. You know, make sure there's these other types of conversations. And especially now, like here in Toronto, there's a big conversation around, you know, how we take care of, of our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. And cities here in Canada, a lot of them have a lot of extreme cold centers. That's the thing that exists. You know, if it's too cold, they open up warming centers so people can go in there. What we are much worse at is cooling centers. When it's so hot or the air is unbreathable, as we've experienced, that's not something that we've really begun to embody in our processes as much. And so I think like these types of questions about how these different things will impact all the way down the line are things we have to start focusing on more because, you know, last I saw the last week, the average Earth temperature was, what, 1.6 degrees above average? 
which is already past 1.5. It's probably it's not it's going to go back below 1.5. It's not like we permanently blown past 1.5. So it's not like that vision is gone. But the fact that we are already here certainly indicates that, you know, we're living through climate change people. Yeah, we definitely need to be having at least like when and when I say we, I mean like this show, we need to be having more conversations about like government programs on that sort of system wide scale, like federally and otherwise. But then, yeah, like kind of what you mentioned with with in Toronto with crew and that sort of the, the mutual aid systems that we're that we're putting in place for ourselves as well as as folks who are like who, who try to be involved in our communities. Something I didn't get to mention today and we've basically run out of time, so I'll, I'll make sure to circle back on it next week is kind of related to this on a global and international level is Canada's commitment of $450 million to the Green Climate Fund today that was announced. It's, it's, it's good. It's not enough. It's also coming out of a previously pledged amount of money from Glasgow of $5.3 billion, but it, it still is something for us to talk about and the ways in which it's good and the ways in which it's bad, the amount of, the amount of it that's grants versus loans and why grants versus loans are important. But basically, the only thing that that I thought was really funny and worth mentioning today is, I guess, Gibo, who made the announcement in Brussels today, was quoted as saying, I would have liked to give more, but I'm not finance minister, which just seemed like a really hilarious job at Christia Freeland. But we don't need to talk about Christia Freeland today. Anyway, we got a break. We'll come back with the interview. Thanks so much. You're you're listening to The Green Majority. Yeah. We're going to go to our featured artist of the week. This is Paul Manchin's I Had a Dream. Take it away. Thank you. 
Welcome back. You are listening to The Green Majority. I am one of your hosts, Lauren Latour, and I am joined here today by Sajel and Robin, two incredible um, organizers and I guess in some cases, healthcare professionals from the climate movement here in so-called Canada. Uh, Sajel, you're a doctor. You are the public health and preventative medicine and family medicine resident physician at the University of Ottawa. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And then Robin, um, you're the co-executive director of Council of Canadians, and you are currently based out of um, Halifax uh, in McMoggy. So you've been firsthand experiencing some of the wildfires that have been happening out there lately. And yes, Sajel, of course, you're also the co-chair of Cape Ontario, uh, the Canadian Association for Physicians of Physicians for the Environment, which is which is the main reason we have you here today, um, because listeners, uh, Robin and Sajel are here um, and we're going to have a bit of a little chit chat about the convergence and like the intersection of public health, regular health, maybe how those differ. I don't actually quite know. Um, and climate and the climate crisis in so-called Canada and how it's been playing out this summer in this summer that's been characterized so much by wildfires and not just by those who are sort of experiencing the acute effects of those wildfires and like having to be relocated and stuff like that, but the way in which like the the smoke is seemingly everywhere and all of the time. So yeah, that's what we're here to talk about today. First, though, I will just throw to yourself so you can introduce yourselves properly um, and make sure the listeners know who they're talking to. Maybe tell us a bit about yourself um, and then a bit about the work that your that your organization is currently doing, if that's okay. Maybe we'll we'll go to Sajel first and then we'll go to Robin. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be able to, you know, share a microphone with two incredible women. Um, So my name is Sajel Bargava. I'm doing my residency. So training to become a public health and preventive medicine uh, physician, as well as family medicine doctor um, at the University of Ottawa. I'm originally from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan on Treaty 6 territory, homeland of the Métis. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I, um, I'm a woman of color, but do definitely recognize the privilege that comes with being a medical professional and, you know, everything that got me here. But I do like to always kind of work through climate through a lens of equity and um, justice. And so what drew me to this work was definitely the intersection of climate change and health. And the fact that I truly believe that we're only as healthy as our environment is. Um, but also recognizing that the climate uh, crisis is also very inequitable. And so a lot of my work in family medicine and preventative medicine 
is um, equity based and looking at how different populations are disproportionately affected. And I think climate change is one of those amplifying risk factors. And so um, I'm really dedicated to this work when it comes to identifying populations that are affected more than others, often the ones who have the least to do with contributing to climate change. Um, and fighting for climate justice and, you know, trying to educate on the connections between climate change and health and communicating the work that I do through the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment um, through that lens. So thanks for having me. And I'm excited to get into this conversation. No, thanks so much for coming today. Um, listeners, just so you know, Sejal and I met um, a few weeks back at uh, an action that had been planned by um uh, the folks at David Suzuki Foundation, um, Stephen and Katie, who we had on the show a few, a, a few months ago now. Um, and I was just so blown away at like your speech and the information and the context you were bringing to, to the event that day. So thanks so much for joining us. Um, but Robin, where are you at right now? What are you working on? What's, what's going on at council? What's going on with you? Uh, yeah. Hey, I'm Robin. I live in Halifax. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the co-executive director of the council of Canadians, and we're an organization that's really trying to work to build political power in defense of people, planet, and our democracy. So overall, we're not kind of a one-issue organization, but we have a broader perspective that uh, we really need together to organize against the influence of corporations over our governments and communities for all kinds of reasons, um, primarily because the uh, centralization of corporate power has really taken over. It's got an, a hugely problematic grip on systems that should be public and decisions that should be made democratically. And so our overall mission as an organization is to organize in our communities really powerfully to break that grip and uh, build things, build an economy and a society that's more built on care, sustainability, um, and public systems rather than greed and profit and all that stuff that's causing us a lot of pain in a lot of ways. Good stuff. No. So that's the thing. It's like Council of Canadians. I feel like a lot of folks might, if if they're not maybe as closely familiar with councils, maybe we would like them to be. I think the assumption might be that council is an organization that's like, I don't know, when people used to think about Council of Canadians, it was a lot about water. Um, mm -hmm. It's a lot about kind of like traditional environmentalism as as, as we might conceptualize it. Um, how did how did the PharmaCare campaign, because because uh, you're on the show today, not only because you're based out of Halifax, not only because you're an expert on climate, but also because of this PharmaCare campaign that yeah. the councils got up and running. How did that come to be? Well, so like I was saying, we're really focused on ensuring that public systems and public services like healthcare and also the provision of clean drinking water for everyone those things need to be publicly run, they need to be publicly managed and financed, and they need to be publicly accountable. But over time, we're seeing more and more, like on the waterfront, for example, um, like bottled water is not just bad because there's plastic bottles, but because it means that companies like Nestle are buying up water resources that should be available for the public, they should be a commons, a common good that we can collectively manage. But instead, consistently, provincial and federal governments are just like licensing out the right for companies to just drill down and take out groundwater that doesn't belong to them like it belongs to all of us and so that's a huge underpinning for why we've always been about the protection of water and maintaining public access and public um management of that and then similarly with healthcare like healthcare in Canada is meant to be a public service it's meant to be publicly financed publicly um administered publicly delivered all of this and so 
um, where more and more we're seeing really since the inception of Medicare 50 years ago, um, there's just been constant attacks by uh, corporations and by different governments who are really angling to support those corporations to privatize healthcare as much as possible. So in Ontario right now, we're seeing a huge onslaught where like day surgeries are being privatized totally, um, for-profit hospitals, P3 hospitals, all of this is happening. But at the same time, drug prices are going through the roof and they have been for more than 30 years because Canada doesn't have a public system of purchasing and negotiating for drug pricing. And so um, in the same way that the fossil fuel industry uh, can lobby so hard and really influence Canada's climate policy, the pharmaceutical and insurance lobby does the same for healthcare. So in the last year alone, <laughs> it's been very scandalous. Like there's this, this is the land of acronyms, but there's this group called the PMPRB. It's the Patented Medicine Price Review Board. And this is a government arm's length independent, supposed to be independent board of experts and whatnot. They're meant to be working to lower drug prices in Canada. Um, and that's just the opposite of what's happened. And so there's this huge scandal because a number of people on that board who are like independent experts, lawyer and like, you know, policy experts, econo economists, et cetera, three out of not that many board members have quit because there's a really clear um, influence over Health Canada by the pharmaceutical and insurance industry. And so the body that's meant to be independent, meant to be um, regulating drug prices, bringing them down, stopping them from just climbing, 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 they've been completely stopped from doing that because there's been multiple interruptions, delays, constant interruption and interference by the pharmaceutical industry. And so when it comes to pharmacare, what we're advocating for is implementing a program that would mirror the, what the Canada Health Act does for us, which is provide public health care in hospitals and through doctors, but do that with pharmaceuticals so that in the same way you could access prescription medications through our public system. And what that would do, I like to call it kind of the Costco model, <laughs> where things are cheaper at Costco because they have a lot of purchasing power. They're buying it all together and they can negotiate really good prices. We want the same thing for Canada. We want to be purchasing and negotiating pricing for medicine um, as a whole so that we can get really good prices and pass the savings on to everyone and across our across our economy and society rather than um, negotiating through 100,000 different private plans, which is what we have right now, where we get terrible pricing and pharmaceutical industry can just jack the prices with no consequence. Um, this is such like, it's, it's going to sound like such a silly anecdote. I won't, I won't get into the details about it, but I feel like this was, I don't know, this, this rising cost of, of pharmaceuticals is something that I just experienced myself like today. This was so silly, but I, I, I have a medication I take. Um, it's really inexpensive, uh, because it's, it's, it's not a big fancy medication to begin with. Um, but I went and I picked it up today and I realized the price has quadrupled, um, hmm. in the last, two months since, since I refilled the medication last. So I, I cannot imagine how hard it is out there for folks, a without healthcare insurance or without health insurance and, 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 um, like something to offset the cost of pharmaceuticals and, and folks who, who have more, I don't know, expensive chronic ailments th than I totally. do anyway. Yeah. So, so Sajel, a would love to hear your thoughts on, on sure. everything that Robin just said about pharmacare, but also if you maybe also if it if it makes sense to pivot at some point to to tell the listeners a little bit about CAPE and the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment oh, sure. and then like what it is that that you've got cooking there right now. 
Okay. Wow. I feel like Robin, you said a lot that like resonated with me and honestly, just like hearing organizations take on this work is incredible because I think the, you know, like any solution needs to be de-siloed and multi-multi, you know, on industry, multifactorially approached. So hearing someone outside of health kind of attack this is really empowering and exciting um, from like a policy and access perspective. So thank you for the work your organization is doing and that you're doing. You're very well spoken about all of this. So I hope I can do you justice. But Robin um, just got back from like a big tour of of pharma care <laughs> town halls. So I feel like you've got that you've got that elevator pitch down at this point. Totally. <laughs> yeah, there's like a couple dozen practice runs before this conversation. So <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> okay, well, I'll do my best. But I think the the first issue that I see, so I'm a I'm currently doing my training in family medicine. And then I move into the public health aspect of health. So I'm working at Centertown Community Health Center in Ottawa, which is a inner city kind of based clinic in Centertown. Um, and we um, all of a lot of our patients are um, unstably housed or um, living in poverty or um, accessing homeless shelters and, and food supports and um, are often, you know, street involved, maybe dealing with addictions and other problems, as well as we have a really large immigrant and refugee population who um uh, it's interesting to see the differences between people who have different types of health coverage and the, the issues that they have accessing healthcare services. So um, at community health centers, we we offer to cover patients who are insured by uh, the interim federal health program, which are um, which is the federally funded healthcare insurance provided for people who are waiting for the refugee claimant status to be processed. And uh, we also have a lot of patients who are on ODSP, which is the disability program um, where people can't work for whatever reason. So they access this other form of insurance. And then often we see people with OHIP, uh, which does not cover medications unless you have OHIP plus, I believe. Um, and then people who have a variety of private insurances as well. So constantly when I'm prescribing medications to patients, I'm thinking what they can and can't access based on their insurance. And if they aren't insured, you know, what I might be asking them to give up instead of getting, you know, for getting their medication, does that mean that they can't buy food that week? Or does that mean that they can't afford their bus tickets? Or, you know, so it's, it's a really interesting struggle when you think about the right to medication and the right to health when it comes to like income security and access to care and all those things. So oftentimes patients are choosing between medications and food. And it's an interesting argument, because even when it comes to healthy medications, we look at, um, for example, something when, when it comes to planetary health, which is another layer that I think of when I'm prescribing medications. Um, when you look at something like asthma, who we know that people who maybe live in a downtown truck corridor, like we see in inner city Ottawa, where the heavy truck traffic is routed through the downtown core, there are the three homeless shelters in Ottawa are all in that area. So they're exposed to increased levels of air pollution, like particulate matter 2.5. And so oftentimes they um, struggle, people living there struggle with things like reactive airway disease or asthma or when or whatnot. And so if I prescribe them a Ventolin inhaler, the cheaper inhaler is an aerosol inhaler and the more expensive inhaler is a discus inhaler. And the aerosolized inhalers are actually greenhouse gases. And so um, I think there's a, there's a figure that says like one, um, aerosolized inhaler is equivalent to like a 260 kilometer car journey if you use it improperly because it essentially releases greenhouse gases into the air. Yeah. So this is something I'm personally mindful of when I'm prescribing these inhalers, but the discus in Saskatchewan, I know at least costs money because it's not covered. 
by the drug plans. And so that will be, that will change based on the insurance plan you have. So oftentimes the more, you know, maybe if I'm being mindful about my prescribing practices, when it comes to admissions, the more expensive one is in fact, the healthier one for people on the planet. Um, but I can't prescribe it to them because I know it will cost money out of pocket because it's not covered by insurance because there is no you know unified drug plan in Canada right now. So sorry, can I just come up with a clarifying question? So the aerosol yeah. ones that you would prescribe to somebody with some sort of respiratory illness, if enough of us were using them, would exacerbate respiratory illnesses? Technically, I guess if you think about it like that. So it's it's you know it's not like equivalent to exactly a car pollution, but it is. I think the figure is. 100 MDI, so meter dose inhaler, um, meter dose inhaler puffs is equivalent to a 290 kilometer car journey in terms of the emissions that it, it can produce. So it's something I'm trying to spread along colleagues and just be like, you know, be mindful of what you're prescribing. But then often we're faced with the fact like, oh, some of these aren't the health, the planetary healthier options aren't actually covered by insurance. So it's a, it's a bit of like a ethical, you know, wrestling ground for us. So. Exactly. Because when you're when you're thinking about planetary health and like the motto is, you know, we're only as healthy as our environments. If I'm, you know, contributing to the greenhouse gas emissions of healthcare, which we know healthcare is a really polluting industry, unfortunately, with the waste we produce and the gases and the energy it requires to run hospitals and, and things like that. It's a it's a bit of a double edged sword. I think So, yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah. And if I, I can just come in, sorry, yeah. just one more time for listeners, please be clear. No one is advocating that you don't use your inhaler. If it's what Definitely. you've been prescribed, if it's what you need, nobody <laughs> wants you to feel guilty about it. No one wants you to not use it. Please use your inhalers. If, it's not if on that's you. What you need it's to on the industries. Exactly. exactly. But you can always ask your doctor to, you know, try the discus one if that's something you want to be conscious of. Yeah. This whole, everything you just said, kind of, it reveals to me much of the narrative that corporations have created basically around everything to benefit their profits. So like there's this whole like carbon footprint idea, which is actually invented by BP to make us all feel bad so that they didn't have to be responsible for the fact that they were like burying climate science and actively stopping climate policy from happening. They were just like, no, no, let's make everyone feel bad about driving. And that's how this is going to keep making us money. And so with what you just said, it's like, if there's a systemic problem where the better thing to prescribe, probably like I've taken puffers and disc, I find the disc is also easier to use mm -hmm. and uh, like a lot less weird. Um, so it's like possibly easier to use better for the environment. I don't know about the clinical results, but like, if it's the right thing for people to be using, it's going to help them and it's going to be better, but it's more expensive. The only reason that comes into the equation is that the pharmaceutical industry wants to make more money and the insurance industry doesn't want to insure the thing that's going to cost them money. And so it's, again, people are ending up making these choices and having the, like guilt maybe, or just being faced with like confusion and a like weird set of facts and figures mm -hmm. that blame the individual for what's going on. And same thing you just said about hospitals. Yeah. It's like, yeah, of course, hospitals use energy and take resources, but it's for our collective health, it's yeah. for health. It's not for profit, like the healthcare industry in Canada largely is not for profit unless um, the Ontario government gets their way, but mm -hmm. like it's for it's for the public good and it can be managed with uh, climate lens in mind as long as it's within public control. And mm -hmm. so I feel like that's where 
like issues of healthcare and issues of climate and all kinds of things, um, water regulation, all of these things come in together. It's all about like many totally. of the problems we're facing are about power and where power is centralized. And in all of these industries, there's just a trend overall that there's more attention paid to industri industry demands and corporate profits than there is paid to the public <laughs> in public yeah. health, including climate and like healthcare. So 1000% terribly, terribly linked. And uh, yeah, yeah. It was interesting entering the climate sphere um, from a health perspective. So prior to medical school, I was um, always interested in, in climate change and health. And I think the most distressing thing to me as a young child in grade four was like the endangered species and like the melting ice caps. And like, I think I like was really interested in like WWF initially is how I got into climate in like grade four. Oh, 100%. Those like yeah. they used to have Saturday morning infomercials yes. that I would sit. I remember on the carpet in front of my grandmother's TV, just like <laughs> sobbing okay. at these images of like dying tigers yeah. and, and the turtles. like horrific stuff. Yeah. Yes. But no, I, I think that's how a lot of us came into or how, how a lot of us sort of con conceptualized climate and environmental quote unquote activism. 1000%. And like, so. And it was like, all our fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's all you. Yeah. It was like you, six year old in Southwestern Ontario, you're not doing enough. <laughs> yeah. Have you measured your climate footprint for the day? <laughs> like, seriously. So like, I remember that being like my climate awakening. And I was like, I need to start an environmental club, my elementary school. And so I did. <laughs> like we planted trees and whatnot. <laughs> and like, and then I got into medical school and I came across the works of CAPE, um, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And it was, um, I knew climate advocacy was honestly one of the largest reasons I got into medicine and um, even why I chose public health. I remember doing undergraduate courses in sustainability at the University of Saskatchewan. I went to my prof and I was like, I think I need to do a master's in environmental sustainability. And he's like, aren't you applying to medical school? And I was like, yes, but this is more important. Like, we don't need another doctor. We need more people working on climate change. And he was like, are you aware that like you can do a lot through medicine for the climate movement? And I was like, okay, you're right. Like, maybe I shouldn't throw away everything I've worked for for the last four years and, you know, just focus on environment, although it is incredibly important. And I still like, I'm constantly thinking of ways to involve climate in the work I do in medicine, because to me, like the climate crisis and to me and the World Health Organization, the climate crisis is the number one most pressing threat to human health in the 21st century. And that is wild that not all physicians are just like freaked out by that and like advocating constantly to like mitigate and adapt to climate change in a way that's helpful. Um, and to connect to our earlier part of our conversation, when we think about you know, actually reducing emissions from the healthcare sector and, you know, responsibly prescribing and having something like PharmaCare be passed, we know that actually based on, I think I read, it was the Planetary Healthcare Framework for Sustainable Healthy Systems by Andrea McNeil is one of the, the main authors. She's a um, cancer surgeon out of British Columbia. I think, I don't want to cite her credentials wrong, but she's a a surgeon in BC who is an incredible leader in healthcare and the impacts of healthcare on climate change. Um, and in the 2021 Lancet Planetary Health Journal cited that the first principle of sustainable healthcare is to reduce the demand for healthcare services. 
And in my mind, as someone who's focusing on preventative care and primary care or community-based care, it's keeping people out of hospitals because hospitals are such a large emitting thing, like, and even the economic cost of a hospitalization. Like if you compare a ER hospital bed, an overnight cost of that to keeping someone at home with community-based care services, like um, an outreach nurse or geriatric services or or a home care check-in, it's way cheaper people are happier, like who wants to spend a night in the ER versus their own bed, you know, um, they can access services easier at home, um, if we have those community based services involved. And so I think there was, um, I wrote it down here, I'm not just citing this out of my out of my brain. But like in 2016, uh, according to this study in 2021, in the Lancet, as of 2016, less than 6% of healthcare expenditure in countries belonging to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development was directed towards prevention and only 14% of budgets towards primary care services. And when you think about that, like it's actually bizarre. And when you think of political, political will and political drive, when we're talking about power, you think about the snazzy investment that doctors or that um, politicians want is like, I've opened a new ER and this ER is going to save lives. And it's like, well, actually, when you think about it, if we prevented people from needing the ER, you would need less ER beds. And actually what we need to prevent or what we need to invest in is preventative services because it's better for the planet and it's better for people and it's better for doctors because we'll be less stressed when you come to the hospital with a completely preventative care, like a prevention, a preventative illness that could have been dealt with by a family doctor or a community-based service, you know, or like less mega hospitals. These mega hospitals are mega polluters. And so if we keep people in the community and out of hospitals, it's economically healthier and like people are happier. And so I think the the whole argument come, for me comes back to like preventative care services, adequate access to medications to prevent exacerbations requiring hospitalization, right? So if someone's deciding between taking a diabetes medication and their grocery bill and they choose their grocery bill that month, then they come into the hospital with diabetic ketoacidosis. And that's a long-term admission that we have to deal with. Right. And obviously it's not their fault. It's, you know, it's the systems and you know the money that goes into it because they can't afford their medication. And all of a sudden now they're in hospital, they're unhealthy, they're away from their family. They're taking time off of work because they're hospitalized. Like when you look at the cost of a hospitalization, it's so multiplied on all aspects of society. So I'm such a proponent for investing in primary care, preventative services, community-based like exercise programming, community-based like connectivity, um, you know, like healthy aging programs, chronic disease prevention programs are all these things that will keep people out of the hospitals, reduce emissions and reduce the cost of healthcare. And so to me, it's a no-brainer. But when you look at a four-year politically driven investment, you know, based on a re-election cycle, what's more snazzy, opening a brand new mega hospital or opening or, you know, investing in primary care services and actually redesigning family medicine so people are attracted to family medicine because they get paid for the work they do. Like, you know, it's not the fun thing because that one you only see 30 years down the road, really, when people go into family medicine and we're like, oh, wait, we saved a bunch of money because people aren't getting hospitalized as much. But it's not the upfront. It's a large upfront cost for not a lot of like snazziness. And you can't really announce that. And it's not a super attractive political thing. So that's the way I see it. It's part of the reason why I want to get into politics, because I think that, you know, having this perspective is entirely relevant to investments and yeah, it's just like it's so frustrating to see when we had this like huge healthcare transfer and it all went into like a mega hospital or like more ER beds when it's like that's not that's the band-aid solution. You're not looking at the root cause of the illnesses.
Yeah. Well, well, and I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but like also a piece of that preventative healthcare, sort of like all of those measures, it's like, is climate adaptation and mitigation because it's like totally right. And it's like, it's, it's, I'm sort of allowing myself a bit of a segue here. Um, and actually, I, I'm really aware of the fact that I, that I wasn't going to keep you two for too long because you're so busy. Oh my gosh. Um, but like one of the things we wanted to talk about today was a little bit like was the wildfires and yes. you know, with Sajal yourself, you're, you're a frontline physician at a community health center in a dense urban area where you're dealing with folks who are experiencing heat exhaustion, experiencing, I'm sure respiratory illness as a result of the wildfires. And then yourself, Robin, you're somebody who, um, like, I remember texting you a couple weeks ago and you were telling me there was like ash falling on your house from, oh from, from gosh. nearby fires. So you, you've both experienced, you're both involved in, in climate organizing and activism in various capacities. You're both sort of working in various ways on, on campaigns and, and Sajal yourself, you're deeply embedded in, in public health and the healthcare industry. So like, how have you both been experiencing the fires this summer and the, and the fallout from them? Not only, not only professionally, um, and as climate organizers, but, but as, as, as humans as well as, as individuals. Uh, yeah. So I live in Dartmouth for folks who know Halifax area. It's across the Harbor from the downtown Halifax area. And the fires were kind of on the other side of Halifax. So I'm a little bit farther away <laughs> than some people from the fires, but still really not that far, like 10 or 15 kilometers at most. And it was horrifying. Honestly, I know that the fire we had kind of pales in comparison to size of the ones that happen in BC and like they're nothing like the ones in Ontario, but I think just the proximity to the city and the fact that we don't get fires, like Halifax is rainy. It rains here. It doesn't burn here. I've lived here for 16 years and there's never been a fire like this ever anywhere close to the city. It's, it was horrifying. And so the day that that happened, like you could see this, I was downtown Halifax and I just like saw a plume of smoke happening. And then everyone's phone started ringing with that emergency alert at the same time. And then there's like, a, I was at a food festival and there's like all these people and everyone's phone was just like, rrr, 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 oh as the smoke is rising. And like, they just kept happening because they kept giving updates. And it was just like, it was seriously horrifying. Mm -hmm. It was like a movie. And then through the day, the smoke just kept getting worse. At first it wasn't near my house and then it got really smoky. Um, and then there were just burnt pine needles like raining down on my neighborhood and on my house. They were like one of, I was outside with a book and a few of them landed on my book and I had to like stare at them for a minute and be like, what is this? How did that get here? And then I figured it out. So it was like very really jarring, really confusing, not something that people here are used to at all, I think. And, uh, and then there was just like a week and a half of complete chaos, like, like 151 houses, I think were like totally destroyed. And I don't know how many more, but like smoke damage and real damage. Otherwise, even if the houses weren't like raised to the ground. And so that's really rough. I think that was like a really high stressed week and a half <laughs> more than that for the whole city and then of course much more than that for the people who are really directly impacted I know like I didn't go outside for a couple of days I had like childhood asthma so I don't really have asthma now but I like I'm a bit of a sensitive baby and so like I didn't go outside I didn't go outside for a couple of days and it's the summer like I I'm an outside person so that's how it kind of affected me personally but then looking around the community like we have a total housing crisis in Halifax there's like hundreds of homeless people, people who are experiencing homelessness, huge challenge of affordable housing. Like there isn't any, 
I think everyone's experiencing in all major cities, certainly in Canada are experiencing this, that there's a huge housing crisis going on and it's driven by corporate greed of trying to just build the biggest condos that are the most expensive that you can get. They don't really serve anyone's needs. Um, and now there's 151 families on top of that whose homes have just burnt to the ground. And also like last year we had Hurricane Fiona, which just destroyed the forests in some areas. And I think that might, I'm not a scientist, I don't know, but like my suspicion is that because there was so much downfall from the fire, that there was just so much forest fuel lying on the forest floor. And so when the fire happened, it just went up. And then thinking about the forest as like both a important part of our ecosystem and also as part of the economy of Nova Scotia, a lot of people rely on private managed woodlots and lots of them are well-managed woodlots. Um, but they rely on them for their income and for their retirement. I know a lot of folks further on the North Shore, like towards Tadmagush, that area was really hard hit by Fiona, the hurricane in the fall. And I know folks who like 80% of their trees got blown down in one fell swoop, and that was their entire retirement plan. And now we see like, oh God, like, and if there's that much deadfall on the ground, it might just torch everything. And so that seeing the connections between all these things has been quite alarming it's extremely alarming um and then a week later the air in ontario and ottawa and toronto and M montreal like the air was orange and you couldn't see the sky like it's um this is very unusual yeah it's very jarring like even having read like every climate report and like being very in the know about what the projections are like knowing in your head is different than knowing in your body because you're breathing smoke and uh mm -hmm. You live in a wet place that's now very very dry so um it was pretty freaking bad that's it was pretty freaking bad yeah that like intensely visceral experience you were describing it was, it, it was intensely visceral and like pretty existentially alarming yeah. to also notice how interconnected all of these different things are and i'm getting like a lot of anxiety from you just even like watching you talk and like it's resonating with me because i know wildfire smoke i think raises my climate anxiety more than I think anything else just because it's an actual visible smellable breathable tangible manifestation of like what is going on in our world you know so yeah I get that anxiety aspect of it and thanks for sharing that it's like it's honestly like it's like I sweat like just recounting it like I remember waking up the first day there was smoke in Ottawa and I'm used to wildfire smoke and I hate, it's not normal that I'm used to wildfire smoke, but like I grew up in Saskatchewan and this is my first summer in Ontario and we get BC wildfire smoke blowover every year. And, you know, in the last like three or four years, it's been a summer, like an every summer occurrence that there's smoky days. And so I remember waking up on the morning of that David Suzuki foundation rally at, at Parliament Hill. And that was the first smoky day in Ottawa. And I woke up and I smelt my condo and I was like, it smells like a campfire here. And I remember I have this like group chat of a bunch of friends who are physicians and everyone was like, it's so foggy out. Like what's going on? And I was like, do you guys not smell this? Like it's wildfire smoke. Like this is smoke. Like no one knew what was happening in Ottawa because this is the first smoky day they've ever had. And the first smoky summer they've ever had. Everyone thought it was fog. <laughs> and I was like, this is wildfire smoke from the fires from the entire country that's burning currently. And so, um, yeah, like speaking, like I just felt I every time there's smoke, I wake up and I just get anxious and I get sad because I can't bike to work because I have asthma. And I remember I did bike to work, even though I know I'm such a 
I don't do as I do do as I say, I guess, because like we know that no amount of smoke exposure is good. It's something that we haven't fully started to measure yet. We don't have a lot of data on it, but it's known that the pollution from wildfire smoke is particular matter 2.5, which is small enough particles of pollution that they can diffuse through your lungs and into your bloodstream. And when two, PM 2.5 is in your bloodstream, it causes like a body-wide inflammatory reaction and inflammation is, is bad for you. So um, that's kind of the easiest way to communicate the direct health consequence of any exposure of wildfire smoke because like those, par- those particles are actually getting into your bloodstream and causing inflammation within a couple of minutes of exposure. So no exposure is good, but I biked to work that day because I didn't want to pay for parking. And I got to Chio, the children's hospital. I'm like having a flat out asthma attack and I have to go take care of kids now. <laughs> I'm like, what do I do? I have to get a buffer from somewhere in the hospital because I was like having a uh, asthma exacerbation myself. And I'm like, how do I take care of people when I'm not healthy? So got to get the disc. <laughs> got to get the disc. So I did get a disc a couple of days later because I was like, this is going to be a whole summer thing that's not going to be helpful for me. So um, but we know that extreme weather events are driven by climate change. Um, everything is, you know, wetter or drier or, you know, it's it's colder and it's hotter and it's, you know, it's all it's, it's warmer, it's cooler. So when we looked at the connections and so I'm wouldn't backtrack. So I'm working with the federal government currently on um, policy recommendations that fed into the national adaptation strategy. So I was working closely with CAPE and the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Um, and a bunch of other organizations that were feeding into recommendations for disaster risk reduction uh, with the NAS. And so when we looked at the intersections between these events, what all the a lot of the adaptation recommendations are very intertwined because we know that heat waves, which is the section that CAPE was working on. So I did a lot of research on extreme heat adaptation. Um, we know that heat waves predispose to wildfires because everything is drier. And then, you know, wildfires predispose to these like community impacts. And then recovery is worse because how long does it take people to get back into their homes? So, you know, we know that these things are completely intertwined and the the health impacts of all of them are wide ranging and different. You know, you have from extreme heat, it's one of the most deathly, you know, natural disasters that can occur. We know that over 600 people died in the BC heat dome. Um, a couple summers ago, and the, those numbers are increasing. I see people presenting to the ER with heat stroke and heat related illnesses daily in Ottawa when I'm working in the ER. Um, oftentimes, they're um, folks who are more who are older or young kids who play outside or people who live, you know, who don't have housing and, and adequate air filtration. So they're breathing in um, or they're breathing in, you know, pollution from downtown. They're also being hit by the sun and there's no shade publicly available because we ripped down tree canopy coverage in lower income neighborhoods in Canada, you know? So, um, when you look at these things, they're so multifactorial. I think the thing that I remember, because I, I'm going to try and end on a positive note with this spiel of anxiety is that, um, action is better than anxiety. And I, I draw from Dr. Courtney Howard, who's a ER physician in Yellowknife. And um, she's a huge inspiration behind a lot of the work that I do. And she always, um, <laughs> she shared an anecdote once of that people would like run the other direction when they saw her coming into the room because they knew her as this like doom and gloom climate lady. So I think like uh, communicating climate change and the risks and the realities of it is important, but it's also important to remember that there is a very, very, doable future that's green and healthy that we can live in where there's no smoky days and there's blue sky every day and people don't have climate anxiety you know if we continue to advocate at a political and a systemic level 
And that's a lot of the reason why as a physician, I choose to engage in this work is because the only thing that makes me feel better about the direction of our world is by, you know, fighting for a better one that I that I can see and that I can visualize because I know it exists if, if enough people speak about it. And if we can t- connect it to things that people care about, like their health or their children's health or their grandparents' health or their mom and dad's health, then potentially we can like strike a nerve and, and get some action. So I find like being politically involved and and talking to people like you guys and like sharing these perspectives is so, so helpful and like restorative and motivating. And I find that getting involved is like one of the best ways to counteract that anxiety that I feel when it comes to things like this. Thank you so much, um, both of you. You've been incredible today. The conversation's been so informative and and really moving at times. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Um, would love for us to end with um, just hearing from both of you about ways that listeners can either get involved or learn more about the work you're doing or or support it. If there's a way that that folks can plug in, maybe maybe we'll go to Robin first and then we'll say bye. Sure. Um, well, the Council of Canadians website is canadians.org. It's got information on all of our campaigns, including our climate justice and just transition campaigns. Um, and we have a special website for pharmacare called publicpharmacare.ca. And that'll give you all the information about what we've been doing, digital actions you can take, how to get in touch with folks in your community, and lots of information about why pharmacare is best. Love it. Um, So CAPE, even though it has physicians in the name, is totally a space that we welcome like interdisciplinary healthcare professionals too. So even community members. So if you're interested in getting involved with CAPE, you can join a regional committee. We have one in every province and territory in Canada now. Um, And our website is cape.ca, C-A-P-E.ca. Donations are always welcome to the organization. You can donate to a specific regional committee if you're from the area. Um, and then I say in terms of getting involved, like don't reinvent the wheel. Like there's tons of groups out there that you can find one that you identify with or find that your perspective would be valued to share with. And I'd say just get involved at a systemic level. Don't kill yourself trying to recycle and compost, even though those are very important. Um, but try and get involved systemically and politically if you can, because I think that's the that's the biggest bang for your buck with regards to time and effort. So thank you, Robin. Thank you, Sajel. This is it for the Green Majority today. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.